Welcome to the Habits of Leadership podcast, brought to you by Cut Through Coaching, helping leaders and their teams to thrive, professionally and personally. Hello and welcome to episode 86 of the Habits of Leadership podcast. My name is Dan Hasler from Cut Through Coaching and joining me today is Dr. Rebecca Ray. Rebecca is a clinical psychologist and author of six books and her most recent book, Difficult People, has been a book that I've been getting into over the past few weeks and I'm delighted to say that she joins us today to talk all things difficult people. Beck, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Dan. So I'm always curious to hear a little bit about how people um, got to uh, where they're at. And so just share a little bit, if you don't mind, about the journey from clinical psychologist to author of six books. Um, I decided at a careers night when I was in grade 10, so I was about 15, um, that I thought it would be really interesting to learn about why humans do what they do. And my best friend's father was a psychologist and I just thought that that would explain all of humanity to me. It, I later learned that it does not, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it does go a long way to feeding my interest in humans and how we behave. And I'm chatting to you specifically, I guess, around the book Difficult People, yeah. but I'm just wondering, because just it just sort of popped off in my head, I'm wondering like, yeah, so you go into this field hoping, hoping, you know, it'll help explain all of humanity. It obviously doesn't. No. I'm just immediately, you know, interested in the kinds of relationships you have with people when they, you know, they know you're a psych um, or they hear you're a psych for the first time. Um, But also the way, you know, like when you're sort of going, I know exactly why you're doing this, or perhaps, you know, you've got an insight into why you're doing it. I'm just interested about how that plays out in in relationships. I mean, it's not all that fun at parties because... um I end up getting the the classic response of "Are you reading my mind?" Um, and I, I I used to get frustrated and think, you know, there is a big difference between a psychic and a psychologist. Um, and then I just used to get to the point where people would say, "Are you analysing me right now?" And I'd be like, "No," um, but I'm surrounded by really great people who are largely interested in their own psychology um, and. As a function of being a psychologist, lots of my friends are mental health professionals. So I think one of the most interesting things is I can't split being a human and a psychologist anymore. Like it's just, it's who I am. So my natural interest in you as a human, in anyone that I come across as a human, means that the way I'm interacting is still as me first, a human first, but it doesn't mean that I just turn off my interest in why someone's doing what they're doing. It just means that I'm still as polite as I possibly can be and don't necessarily fire intrusive questions (laughs) at people unless they've invited me to do so. Some people do get a little bit anxious. um, And I think that's because uh, there's a lot of misconceptions around about what psychologists do and what it looks like. But with the rise of therapy acceptance across social media and in our culture as a whole, that's getting less and less. And more more and more we see a rise of people that voluntarily um, admit to having their own therapist. And that's almost a cool thing to have now. And I think people actually realize that therapy is a privilege. It's an expensive, it can be an expensive thing to go about and do. Um, So, you know, 
if anything, I get people messaging me saying, can I ask you a question more than anything? So I really have to manage that because therapy via social media is not only against our code of ethics, it's also not fair on my energy either. It's interesting because already I can hear you talking about something that I know we'll get to later, but this idea of having boundaries in place because yeah. I'm guessing, I'm, and this is a guess because I don't know you, but I'm guessing that you went into this field because there was not only a desire to understand people, but presumably help people as well. And so I'd imagine that there's a there's there's a drive to want to respond to everyone who wants help, but perhaps at some point you've realised that that's just not doable and it's not fair to you it's not it's not sustainable and again I'm, I'm absolutely speculating here but um, I'm curious to know how deliberate you've had to be in um, setting up boundaries yeah. so the so that you can be better for want of a better word um, at what you do but also you can really look after yourself and, and be there for the people around you you know in a personal sense as well. Yeah, look, it's a it's a correct assumption that you're making. The boundaries are not only necessary, but they're very much present. And I think they arose largely out of the fact that I didn't actually end up with an online presence and becoming an author. Um, that wasn't intentional. That was accidental because I got incredibly burnt out in clinical practice. My burnout was also unintentional. It was accidental. Um, I spent of 15 years in clinical practice um, and I essentially just did too much of it uh, in too short a space of time. Not that 15 years is a short space of time but um, my desire to help, my desire to not turn people away, to not turn referrals away meant that I thought I was going to be in clinical practice until I was 70 and at 35 I had to rethink my entire career. So at that point when I walked away from clinical practice, I was devastated. I was absolutely um, shattered that I couldn't continue to do psychology in the way that I thought I would, in the way that I was trained to do it. So I thought, how on earth do I do what I love if I can't see clients? And then I stepped out into the online world as someone who didn't even have a Facebook profile at the time. Like I was just so anti-social media and yet that's how everything runs now. So it was almost essential. And I dipped a toe in, ended up getting a book published and here we are six books down the track. I actually just finished my next proposal for my next book before we started recording today. And I was in this place where I was like, I still want to make a difference. I still actually want to do something that feels meaningful for other people. This isn't just about my interest. It's about how my interest and the wisdom that I've gained over these years of clinical practice can actually make a difference to other people. When I first started on social media online with an online presence, people seem to be far more brazen than what they are today. And so I would get messages with people um, disclosing their mental health struggles, including suicidality, um, which is a very difficult thing to manage when someone has a private profile and lives on the other side of the world. What am I supposed to do with that? So for my own, um, for the preservation of my own energy and also for other, for the people messaging me for their safety, I know this might sound like an oxymoron, but for their safety, I just didn't respond 
Because if I start to engage, it puts me in such a vulnerable position. I can't help. I don't know the resources available in their country. I can't be responsible for them and their safety and their mental health um, when they could be on the other side of the world. So I set boundaries very early on that any direct messages that were sent to me about anything that was um safety related I just wouldn't respond to um and then the second thing was people would sometimes message me and tell me about the breakup with their boyfriend and how they can't get over it and what should they do about it you know and I would just be honest with those people and say you know this is um against my code of ethics to respond I can't do therapy via social media and it's also unfair to paying clients and people would very quickly get the hint, you know, and often they were apologetic. They just didn't realize that there was a boundary there. Now I think we're in a more informed uh, era in our culture. And so I, I don't get that anywhere near as much. In fact, I would say I only get it maybe once every six months, maybe once every 12 months where it used to be like once every two weeks. So and that could be, I mean, sometimes I also think, is that because my energetic boundaries have changed as well? I'm just so clear in the fact that I'm not available for that, that it doesn't come at me anymore. Yeah. Well, but you are available for writing books, as we've just heard. Another proposal gone in today. And um, your most recent book um, is one I've been uh, getting into over the past couple of weeks. Um, and it jumped out at me, as I was telling you off air, we were putting together um, for some of the people we work with, we're putting together um, a series of articles, um, some thinking in and around managing up in the yeah. workplace. And, and um, whilst the book doesn't specifically talk about that, it talks about, I guess, many of the reasons why people need to learn to manage up. And that's yeah. because um, some people are, in inverted commas, uh, difficult people. And that's the title of the book. Um, yeah. And what I thought we'd do... Um, to kick off is just so everyone's clear who's listening you know is could we please define difficult people like can we define yeah. what it what it is and I think also um importantly what it's not because I mm -hmm. think um well just from reading your book I, I, I'm making a lot of connections between how I've heard other people speak about people and and to be fair as well myself you know I thought oh yeah I've, I've probably been there's been times where I've kind of just lumped that person into the difficult person category, you know, yeah. um, yes. when perhaps, perhaps they didn't quite hit all the, all the markers. So you wrote the book. So if you don't mind, if you could just, yeah, bring us into the picture about how you define how you think of difficult people. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to start with why I wrote the book because that informs the definition of a difficult person. I wrote a book that came out in 2021 called setting boundaries. Um, it's been the most popular book that I've written so far because it seemed to land in the middle of COVID when everyone was talking about boundaries, you know. We were all at home, stuck at home together and had to rediscover what are our boundaries. And I got the most beautiful responses around that book, but I kept getting asked the same question. And that question was, I can set my boundaries now. I really feel like I know what they are. I feel confident to actually express them, but they're just not working with this one person. What do I do? And I was like, oh, that's too hard. I don't want to write a book on that one person because that one person is so complex and there's so much nuance in what that person might look like and behave like. 
unfortunately, my publisher says, look, we should really answer that question. (laughs) And so I was left with the task of writing a book on difficult people. So what I wanted to answer with this particular task was who is a difficult person and who are they not? Exactly as you asked. The first thing is, who are they not? They're not dangerous. A dangerous person, when we're looking on the continuum of interpersonal safety from someone who's so safe and comfortable for you um, versus someone who is dangerous for you, a dangerous person is someone who transgresses your boundaries to the point where that likely becomes criminal. So there's some kind of physical or sexual um, transgression. Pretty obvious, right? Now, difficult people don't necessarily go that far, which actually makes them harder to spot. But they're generally people who violate your psychological safety and or project their own emotional dysregulation onto you. So that what that means is they gen- difficult people often have loud emotions. They have trouble moderating their own response to their feelings and their thoughts and their internal experience in the present moment. You and I right now are moderating our experience. You know, you might've had a bad morning. I might've had a bad morning and yet we're not here projecting it onto each other. Mm. Difficult people struggle not to do that. And so their behavior is often so subtle though, that it's difficult to put words to. And this is not a professional term, But honestly, the most common thing that I get, um, that I hear people describing the difficult person in their life as making them feel is icky. So they've got a real ick factor about them where you walk away second-guessing yourself, second-guessing your experience of the interaction and whether or not there's anything that you can do to change their behaviour. So when you're dealing with a difficult person, one of the things to be aware of is that they're usually difficult over time. They're not just someone that's going through a bad patch in life Um, and certainly not someone that's just having a bad day. You know, we all have bad days and I firmly believe that we can all be difficult in for different, sorry, for distinct periods in our lives. If you're going through a divorce or you've just had a new baby and you're being woken up seven times a night or you're caring for a terminally ill parent, There is, we all have our emotional bandwidth. And once we reach the limits of that bandwidth, we can become ineffective socially. Um, That doesn't mean that you're a difficult person. It means that you're a person trying your best under very difficult circumstances. Mm. Difficult people, on the other hand, are often predictably difficult in very um, predictable situations time and time again to the point where you might actually experience what psychologists call anticipatory anxiety when you forecast a time in the future when you're going to have to share a meeting room with this person or we're approaching Christmas, um, you know, when you're going to have to share a, a table of celebration with this person and they might be drinking the thing about a difficult person is you probably know that they're going to be difficult based on how they've behaved in the past. How does that then impact how we behave, right? Because we we tend to get more of what we look for. So if I know that, you know, um, the my boss or my colleague is going to be um, difficult, whatever, and we'll talk about yep. some of the specifics or behaviours of that, but let's just use that word difficult at the moment. If I'm going yep. into that knowing they're going to be difficult, does yep. that kind of make me more likely to um, almost see the difficulty and, and and almost then maybe respond in a way which 
I don't know, could even amplify. I'm not. I'm just to be clear. I'm not blaming the people who are experiencing difficult people for for the behaviour. But I'm just yeah. wondering if there's a little dance that's going on here, where if I'm going to walk, I'm walking insistent, knowing that they're tricky. Do I only see the trickiness? Do I not see their humanness, for yeah. if for want of a better phrase? Um, yeah. And and yeah, I'm just curious about that sort of interplay. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Um, psychologists call this an already listening. So it's like you enter into a, a situation where you're about to hear the things you expect to hear. And that can color your perception of the interaction, especially if the interaction goes differently. I see it difficult. Uh, sorry, I see it differently when we're actually dealing with difficult people, though, because I think when you can predict how someone's going to behave, what that does is it actually helps you prepare for it. So, yes, there is a chance that you might enter the situation and then be very frustrated that they did exactly what you thought they were going to do, you know, and it was just as hard as what you expected. But also, if you know you if you know they're going to behave that way, you can actually do something dif- differently in response to that behavior. Because one of the things <laughs> in the first conversation with my, with my publisher about writing the book, I said, just to be clear, you understand that I'm not going to write a book with a solution on how to change the difficult person, right? Because there isn't that solution. We can't change other people. So all we have to reclaim our own power is to change our own behavior in response to what they're doing. Yeah. And and perhaps, as you say, in preparation too. So whether it's mm. something as simple as a a mindful moment before going into the meeting. So I'm I'm walking in there as my best self is you know so I mean I do a lot of work with athletes and we talk about you know the stuff you do beforehand to step into a pressure moment and dealing with a difficult work colleague can be the equivalent of a high pressure moment you know for for, absolutely on a day-to-day basis so yeah it's um yeah I'm I'm just interested in that sort of interplay between the prediction you know the self-fulfilling prophecy but also the benefit of being was it forewarned is forearmed kind of thing so it's yeah, um, you, I certainly don't encourage people to go in for a fight. So it's not that kind of anticipation, but it is to respect the the body response. You know, difficult people can actually trigger our fight, flight, freeze, fawn response. And what can happen is you end up in a predictable cycle of behavior between you. So they do that, you do this. They do that, you do this. And around and around we go. In order to change your experience of that interaction, you need to change what you do in the cycle. So being able to predict their behavior helps you to think, okay, what am I going to do differently this time? And it might be a mindful moment. It might be practicing with a safe and trusted friend how you express your boundaries, or it might be practicing removing yourself from an interaction altogether when that interaction becomes unsafe. Mm. You you mentioned the um the, the 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 threat response there the fight the flight the freeze and you added a fourth one there which I've I've heard a lot but I don't yeah. think a lot of people have heard it um, yes. the fawn response so I think most people get the fight response the flight response and the freeze but talk to us a little bit if you don't mind just around the fawning response yes um and and what that actually means uh, the fawning response I, I I attached it to the fight flight freeze response like it was part of our survival instinct. It's actually not. It's a behavioral adaptation. So the fawn response doesn't necessarily happen to help us survive. It helps us to cope um, in, in terms of 
let's say this interaction is going awry, I'm going to turn myself inside out and upside down to make sure that the other person's happy. It's not the same as there's a car coming towards me as I try to cross the road, road I need to run or get out of the way. Um, but it starts with F and it's nice to attach to all the Fs. Um, I'm a fan of alliteration. But to be clear, the fauna response is actually, a, a, it's a relational strength if it's used in the right way. So Fawning simply means that you're appeasing someone else. You're doing whatever needs to be done in the interaction to restore peace, to meet someone else's needs, or to not rock the boat. And so what's happening there is um, generally for people who are adept at fawning, colloquially we call them people pleasers, they are very good at being able to understand um, emotional and interpersonal interactions to the point where they can do whatever another person needs. Now that's great in relationships because other people benefit a lot <laughs> from that kind of behavior, but it's not so great for the people pleaser or the fauna if their needs aren't met in the first place. So generally, uh, and I say this because so many, especially women out there identify with this, um, reality and habit of people pleasing that it's not a bad thing I don't want to make I don't want you to make yourself defective because you naturally people please you people please because it works you be you people please because it restores the situation back to a level of comfort for everyone that's a really useful skill to have but it will harm you if you do it so habitually that your own needs perpetually become second or last. Um, and this is what I see so often in people who um, naturally fawn around difficult people is that they do so to the point where the difficult person continually obtains advantage or benefit from them and access to their personal resources and they're left absolutely burnt out. Um, their giving tanks are rusted, they've got nothing left for themselves and yet they don't know how to get themselves out of the cycle. And the difficult person isn't going to spot that, or even if they do, if they're truly difficult, they're just going to carry on anyway. Oh, right? They're not going to—they're not going to have the awareness to say, "Hey, I've noticed, <laughs> I've noticed you're burning out here. Why don't you take a break?" No they're way. just going to keep piling on. Yeah. No, a difficult person is not going to shut the gate that you left open because they're mm. benefiting from walking through that gate. Yeah. If you continually just leave it open, then that's the difficult person is getting the outcome from the interaction that they're looking for, even with awareness, like a truly difficult person will know that this works for them. Yeah. That, and, and that's, that's something that I'm really interested in about in your, in your experience. Like if, again, if we think about that continuum that you sort of painted for us, where we've got people at one end who are just, they're, they're awesome for us, you know. They're soothing, they're healers. We're we're, we're energized by their presence. Yeah. Through to the dangerous person, who, you know, the criminal. Um, that and then we've in between that, you know, are difficult people deliberate? In yes, it? I I think largely they are. Um, and then there's difficult people who. Um, don't have insight into their behaviour but do have awareness of the outcomes that their behaviour gets them. Um, and that could simply be that they get to stay in the victim role. So they get to stay getting what psychologists call secondary gain out of their behaviour. So if 
life's too hard for me and I blame you for it and I project my emotions all over you and expect you to go and pick up the pieces that I'm claiming to not be able to pick up for myself, then you going and doing that for me allows me to stay in the victim role. Life's hard, therefore um, it's not my fault. It's not my fault because things are so hard for me. Like even with that, where you might be able to claim that it's unintentional, people have a lot of stuff going on for themselves, the lack of responsibility is a benefit for the difficult person. People who tend towards narcissism and who tend towards swindling behaviours for other people and controlling behaviours for other people often get so much benefit out of their Um, intentional behaviors that even if you brought awareness to those behaviors and said, hey, you're taking advantage of others, they're unlikely to change their behavior because the benefit's too high for them. And to lose that benefit would mean that they'd have to put in too much effort into changing. There are difficult people who, um, so in the book, I talk about difficult people who are fauners, chronic fauners, you know, they're chronic people pleasers. And how I don't think those people intend to be difficult at all. In fact, I think they'd be quite horrified to learn that they that they could fall into the category of being difficult. But I do so to raise awareness that if you chronically people please, you can actually make life so much more difficult for people around you because you they never know where you stand and they can't trust you to be an adult and to meet your own needs. So instead, they can end up walking around you and thinking, I've got to protect this person because they won't protect themselves, or I've got to guess what this person wants because they'll never say it. And so in order for this um, interaction to feel like it's equal and not me taking advantage of you because you're fawning, I then need to do all the work because you won't tell me what it is that you need and want. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of nuance here, a lot of complexity. Yeah. And and just hearing you there, it sounds like um, that perhaps some of the archetypes that you identify might be more open to change, but there are some, as you say, the you know the, the swindler or the narcissist or the controller, or perhaps the aggressor. Perhaps, and again, everyone's different, right? But perhaps they'd be less inclined to change. But perhaps the victim, if the victim, you know, if the victim could be shown there was another way. If the victim could be, you know, coached, supported, whatever, perhaps they would be more inclined. Is that fair to say? Or or are some people just intractable regardless of the archetype? Oh, I think absolutely we have intractability um, depending on the level of benefit, depending on the person's personality style. But I think if you're, let's say you're a difficult person because you've been traumatised, you know, through no fault of your own, you've experienced an upbringing where your grown-ups didn't model healthy boundaries, they didn't respect your boundaries, they walked all over you, you've landed in adulthood not knowing how to have equal um, interactions where your needs are met and where you're confident in your own self-worth. I actually think that for those people, a lot of the time we're actually talking about skills deficits. Um, They don't know what they don't know. They don't know that they're valuable. They don't know that they're allowed to have needs and to express those needs. And sometimes we can see this is the benefit of therapy, right? Sometimes with the right um, processing of those emotions and the skill building around that, we can see someone that previously behaved in difficult ways transform into a person that's not difficult at all. Um, 
So I don't think it's cut and dried. Um, I think genuinely difficult people have no interest in changing, even if they're aware of what their behavior does. Um, But then I also think that we need to acknowledge that we all have the capacity to be difficult. And I think what makes us different from people that perhaps you end up writing a book about is that for, for those people that have an interest in their own psyche, they're not comfortable hearing that their behaviours might be difficult and they're interested in ways that they might be able to alter those behaviours. Just, um, you know, where you were talking there about the, um, you know, we don't know the upbringing people have had and, and um, this is a slight tangent, but I, I just recall you, I, I can't remember if I read this that you said or, or you said this in a podcast, but it stuck with me. And it, it's, and, and, and as I say, it's a slight tangent, but I think it's also tied in. It's like, you know, um, we've got to recognize the, the the background, the backstory, the the context that people have, you know, um, the privilege, I guess, that that we have um, or, or don't have. And the, the, the line, um, which I just wanted to share, for, for no other reason just to share back to you that I love this line, um, was, um, you know, when people say, oh, you made good cho- choices. Mm. And and I heard you reframe it as, no, no, I had good choices. Yeah, you know, that line be, was be, taken but, from Little Fires Everywhere, a show on Netflix. Right. Spoken by um, Kerry Washington's character. She's a black character to a white character. She was talking racially at the time and she said, right. um, no, it's not that um, you made good choices, it's that you had good choices. And yeah. I agree. I think that line is incredibly powerful when we're talking about upbringing because so often difficult people don't land in adulthood as difficult people except for how their grown-ups raise them. Um, You know, when you've been traumatised as a child, when you've been raised in poverty, when you've had all sorts of oppression on your shoulders and then your adults didn't love you the way you deserved, they didn't show you that you were worthwhile, they didn't build the skills within you to be interpersonally resilient, of course life is going to be harder. And, of course, the way you love and receive love is going to be messy. There's so many different connections popping off in my head with with the work we do, and the, we just last night we were interviewing another guest for our podcast, and that that was the topic of belonging, you know. And yeah. I just think sometimes it's, um, you know, everyone wants to belong, yeah, and yet not everybody wants everybody to belong, yeah. and and I just wonder about you know like when we, I, I just feel that if we could let go of our backstory you know as as seeing as well that's that's the way it should have been for everyone and you know and, and just i wouldn't i just wonder how much how much more people on on the outside for want of a better phrase might feel like they belonged if if we could just practice proper empathy you know like just just really try and get to see people and I, and, and again i know this is a bit of a tangent but i'm just curious about when we start um i don't know sort of mis misreading people in difficult circumstances for being difficult people i just wonder if we could put the brakes on that a fraction and just delve in with a bit of empathy i wonder um if that would make a change again i'm sort of gone off on a bit of a tangent no, i absolutely agree and in fact i think you're speaking to the first whole third of the book um where i talk about the fact 
I, I talk about how difficult people become difficult. And I think if you don't, if you don't enter, if you don't operate in the world from a place of empathy and compassion, life gets harder for you too. The world is so much more abrasive and your interactions will be so much more abrasive if you don't enter them with compassion and empathy for the other person and for yourself. Because what happens is when we're out in the world, we often forget that people have whole lives that they're dealing with. They have imprinted traumatic scars that they're trying to manage on a daily basis. And then you also have your relationship with yourself. And if your relationship with yourself is fragile, um, if there's no solidity to it, then you're in a um, you're in a vulnerable position because you look outwardly and seek external validation for you being okay. And if you come up against someone else that has fragile worthiness and a poor self-concept, then often there can be sparks and fireworks between you because you're both looking for your needs to be met by each other rather than being able to do that for yourself. So I, I absolutely agree. I think the empathy and compassion needs to be given externally, but it must first be given internally as well. And, and again, I heard you say something like, you know, your peace is your responsibility. Yes. And and I, I, again, I just think that's a really powerful um, framework. But again, in order, if, if people um, were to take hold of that and say, okay, let, let's say let's say that I can grasp that as a concept that my piece is my responsibility. Yeah. The 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 ability then. Because I, I think this is a skill set in itself, and we touched on this right at the start of the conversation, is to be able to put boundaries in for myself, for the people around me. And this is just a, a fest of me sharing quotes of yours, which I just <laughs> made me stop in my tracks. When you, when you speak about boundaries, this is on the first page of your book, just quietly. Um, boundaries are the most powerful gift you can give to a person. Mm. Like... I, I read that and I was like, wow. <laughs> and, and and immediately it hit me like, I get it, but I want to hear more about it. Yeah. <laughs> like it, it, it immediately struck me as being true. Um, but I don't know if I fully understand the nuance of it. I think I might, but yeah. I'd really love to um, just dig into this and, and how that then plays into the piece is kind of like my, my piece is my responsibility. Yeah. So, what happens with boundaries is they get such a bad reputation, um, especially for women and femme identifying folk, where you're in a place where you're expected to be the one that does the interpersonal work to make a interaction or relationship better. So women get scared of being judged as being hysterical or deverish or mean or selfish or unkind if they set boundaries. That's what we hear about boundaries largely in Western culture. I disagree. I think that if I set boundaries with you, actually we did it right at the beginning of the podcast. You said, how long do you have? And I said, 45 minutes. That's a boundary, right? I've just taken away the guesswork for you. You don't need to think, oh my goodness, is she running out of time? Does she have another meeting to go to? Does she really want to be here? I've told you how long I want to be here for. I've told you so that you get all of me for that time and there's no leftover resentment when we go over time. And I'm like, I told him that uh, we should be finished by now, surely. Like, you know, he should just know. No, 
in rela- in relationships and in interactions, even though you and I have only known each other for 35 minutes right now. Yep. 10 minutes to go. It's, a, <laughs> it's all right. It's fine. But one of the things that happens is we walk around just hoping that rather than having to voice our boundaries because it's mean and unkind, that the other person would just know and then we get pissed off when they don't. And we start to get resentful and we start to get irritated and frustrated because they don't know. But the thing is, humans are so incredibly imperfect. We're not mind readers. And so if you set your boundaries with someone overtly, gently, compassionately, spoken kindly, then what you're doing is you're saying, here's my user manual on how to love and care and respect me. It makes life so much easier. Now, Part of this is also the nuance of understanding that when you know someone for a lot more than 35 minutes, your relationship with them will evolve and so will your boundaries. I've had best friends. I remember when my best friend had um, a baby. She had three babies. She had three under three for a while. And we used to talk like every second day on the phone. And it got to a point where very early on where she would say, I just can't, like I literally cannot have a conversation without some kid crying or hanging off me. And I didn't have a child at that point, but our um, communication shifted to text. It was a clear boundary. I can't do this because it's hurting me to communicate in this way. So can we text instead? It makes it super clear because she was in a new phase in life where that's what was possible. So I think one of the things about the instruction manual or making it a gift in relationships is that You understand that as a human being, you're taking responsibility for your needs and wants by expressing that to the other person so they don't need to guess about it. This is where your inner peace is both priceless and your responsibility. But it then also means that we shift into a place where once you've communicated those boundaries and you know those boundaries are very well known by that other person, when that other person keeps crossing those boundaries very clearly time and again, despite warnings and despite requests for the boundary not to be crossed, that's when your inner peace becomes just as much your responsibility. Because again, if you continue leaving the gate open, the fact that they walk through is your fault. I I imagine, I don't know, but I imagine that there are some people listening who go, I would love to be able to set some boundaries with, you know, they might have that. I'm sure they've got people popping off in their head, like going, yeah, that person, yeah. I would love to be able to put a boundary in for that person. Or or perhaps there's someone saying, I just need a boundary for me, right? Like yeah. something that I just put put around uh, around me. But I, I'm thinking specifically actually about the people, like, like other people. But I also imagine that there's some people going, I've just got no idea how to say that. I've got, I don't know, like, how do I say that without coming across as a narc? Or how do I say that without seeming rude? And, and you, you sort of said, you know, in that, no, no, we're going to communicate this with kindness. And, you know, it's, it's an interesting one because, you know, words are going to sound different coming out of everyone's, you know, different people, but you do suggest some scripts, um, in, in your book, you do Mm -hmm. give some ideas and I want, I, unless it's, um, not clear yet, I want people to go and read this book. So I don't want you to give all the scripts but what I'm wondering is if even if we could just 
play around with two or three scenarios just so people can hear because I know this sounds almost this sounds almost patronizing but I don't think it is because I work with so many people who look at me and go Dan I don't know what to say yeah so <laughs> and you've written a book where you filled pages with what to say so clearly you've had this experience too so can you just can we just play around with just a couple of scenarios maybe one family member maybe one work colleague and and one other of your cho- choosing yeah So I think the first thing to understand with scripts and what to say is that it's always person and interaction dependent. I get asked this question in every single podcast. How do I say it? And I used to, I used to people please and try to come up with some kind of clear statement that people could use. And then I realized that that actually goes into, goes against every single bit of my authenticity and psychological wisdom, which is you can't use the same words for every single interaction because they don't fit. So first of all, the words need to be true to you. Otherwise, you're going to feel like an idiot saying them. You're going to feel like it's not you. Um, And we need you to reclaim your own sense of empowerment. So it very much needs to be true to you. And then they need to be appropriate to the circumstance. So the way you talk to a partner is going to be different to the way that you talk to your manager at work. So I like phrases rather than full statements because a phrase themselves can actually lead you into setting the boundary because it sets this... um, seen softly. So most people are looking for a soft approach rather than a hard slap across the face because they wouldn't like that either. And I think it's important that, again, when we're trying to communicate compassionately and kindly, we do that. So I suggest phrases like, I'm wondering if, is it possible if, can we collaborate on this? so that people can then enter into the interaction to be able to speak about the thing that they're talking about um, but still get their needs met. So, for example, if we're talking about a family member, um, I often talk about an example where my wife comes from a very loving family. They love um, intensely. They love in a way that is very uncomfortable for me. Um, I come from a family of emotional distance where we spend 45 minutes together and then we're like, great, okay, see you later, like we're done. Um, My partner's family live interstate and so at the beginning of our relationship they would come and stay bloody every fortnight and then when they stayed they would spend literally the every single hour that they weren't sleeping together. And I was like, I'm going to die. I'm literally going to die because this is suffocating. Now, I that was a new boundary. I didn't know I had that boundary until it happened. And then I was like, oh, my goodness, this doesn't feel good. I'm so – I'm also an introvert. So being around people that much just drains me. I can really only spend that much time with you if I'm married to you or if I gave birth to you. That's it. That's my limit. And so – um. I had a conversation with my wife where I had to explain to her um, that I didn't have the energy for that level of contact over that time. And so we came to a position where um, it it did take a number of conversations where I had to make it very clear. It wasn't that I didn't love her family. I do. I actually love them dearly. I think they're wonderful people. But the way my my needs are is that I need space. If if you want the best out of me, if I'm going to be the best version of me, I need the space to decompress. And that conversation started with, can we think about this differently? Is it possible that when we see your mum and dad, they don't stay overnight with us so that we can actually see them? We can see them every single day. I just need downtime. 
away from that. So we have a boundary where if we're going to go down and see them, we stay somewhere else. If they're coming up, they stay somewhere else and we meet during the day. Now, when you're talking about with your manager, you're not necessarily talking about someone that is staying overnight or someone that you know intimately perhaps, but you're also talking about someone who wants something from you and they're going to benefit from you being a motivated employee. When you're having that conversation, that's where language like can we collaborate on this can be really helpful. Um, But it can also be helpful when you show them the fact that um, you can get your work done in these hours and working after 5 p.m. on a Friday doesn't necessarily need to happen in that way. I think what we're talking about is choose language that invites someone to work with you on this rather than divides them from you. Boundaries are circles of empowerment and preservation around you. They're not lines of division. I mean, if you go read the dictionary, that's the first thing that you'll read, that a boundary is a dividing line. But when we're talking about relationships, they're actually lines to help us collaborate. Well, one of the boundaries, as you say, you put in place was 45 minutes and unfortunately we're right up against that, and uh, which is a shame because um, I, I could talk a, a lot more about um, both the, the idea of boundaries and also difficult people. But um, what I'd like to do actually is make sure that everyone listening gets the opportunity to connect with you um, <laughs> appropriately, yeah. um, you know, uh, connect on, on, on your social medias, your LinkedIn and, and wh- where they can find, um, your six books. Is that right? There are six, six books, different, yes. there are six books and there's another one in the pipeline by the sound of it. So, yes, um, yeah, where's the best, where's the best place for people to find you online, Beck? So they can find me at rebeccaray.com.au. That's R-A-Y or as at Dr. Rebecca Ray across all the socials. I'm mainly on Instagram and LinkedIn. Um, and my books are available in all good bookstores and online retailers and on audio as well. So, um, the first three were gift books. You won't find those in audio, but you will find the three self-help books in audio on audible and in Kindle format as well. If print is not available in your country. And if I was just going to say one more thing for us to walk away on, it would be, um, I really want people to remember that as an adult, you have permission to not allow another adult access to you if that adult is harmful to you, even if you share DNA with that person. Well, I reckon plenty of people have got plenty out of this chat. So I really do appreciate you um, giving up giving up your time today. And um, I'm going to make sure all the links that you just uh, mentioned there are in the show notes so people can um, find your books and connect with uh, your website and on, on Insta and whatnot. So, um, yeah, all that's left to say is uh, thank you so much for joining us, Beck. Um, I've had a real uh, blast um, reading the book, first and foremost, Difficult People, but also then being able to chat about some of the stuff in that book with you today. So thank you very much. Thanks, Dan. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for your interest in my work. As I mentioned, all the links to Rebecca's website, her Instagram feed and her LinkedIn page are all in the show notes. Um, If you found that conversation worthwhile, as we always say, there is a fair chance that someone you know would also find it worthwhile. So please share this podcast as far and as wide 
as you can. And while we've got you, if you could just take less than 30 seconds to like the podcast, perhaps leave a comment about the podcast. Make sure, of course, you've subscribed to the podcast because every little click um, that you take in in that regard, it just unleashes the uh, internet algorithms and pushes this podcast further and further. And if honestly, if you if you like this podcast, that is the easiest and probably best, and certainly uh, free <laughs> way uh, to best support um, the work that we do here with the Habits of Leadership podcast. As always, we're really grateful for um, everyone who listens and everyone who finds um, the podcast worthwhile. If you'd like to learn more about our work or you'd like to suggest a guest or perhaps you might have a question that you'd like us to dig into for an upcoming Q&A show, then all you need to do is head over to habitsofleadership.com and click on the podcast page. Um, But until next time, thank you so much for listening. Take care. Take it easy.